In this episode, Dr. David Engelthaler, director of the Genetic Translational Lab, TGen North, steers us away from the politics and emotions surrounding the virus and the vaccines and guides us to the science behind those. His take on the monumental and historic achievement of the vaccine development and how that effort will be powerfully beneficial for all of us is especially interesting. And I was also struck by how Dave's view on what's happening in the world around the vaccine and the virus and his positive spin on that was particularly enlightening. Dave is thoughtful, he's knowledgeable, and he's highly engaging and funny. So enjoy this episode. I know I did. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbis. I'm especially pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. David Engelthaler. Dave is an associate professor at Northern Arizona University and the director of TGen North, which is the infectious disease arm of the Translational Genomic Research Institute. To give you a little background on TGen, February 7, 2002, there was an assembly of probably more than 50 leaders in science, medicine, and government that gathered at the state capitol in Arizona to discuss the possibility of establishing the state, Arizona, as a player in the new economy of the biotechnology industry. The goal was to set up a -a one-of-a-kind genomics research institute that allowed many of the world's leading scientists to turn breakthroughs in genetic research into medical advances that would benefit patients and their families. As a result of that, they are now doing research into cancer, neurological disorders, rare childhood diseases, and even canine cancer. That's not the full menu, but you can see that they're pretty focused. And currently, as one would expect, they're heavily involved in COVID-19 research. And in March of 2020, TGen stood up a clinical laboratory to provide COVID testing for Arizona residents. So you can see that TGen has a pretty big scope and mandate, and Dave is the guy running the shop. And prior to running TGen North, Dave was Arizona's state epidemiologist. And then prior to that, he was a biologist for the CDC. So Dave has published over 135 scientific papers or chapters and has two dozen patented inventions. You can see that Dave has all the credentials and experience to talk about our current situation with COVID-19, but maybe more importantly, to look at a larger scale relative to potential future biological events and maybe more importantly, scientific breakthroughs that he sees coming up on the horizon. I'm happy to say that Dave is a friend of mine, and quite frankly, he's one of the smartest people I know. So, Dave, thank you for visiting. I know, as usual, you're crazy busy, so we all appreciate you carving out some time for us. 
I want you to share the story that you have when you were kind of virus hunting and pathogen hunting, what happened to you in, in a mine, and then we can go from there because I love this story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for setting that up, Mike. You're welcome. I, yeah, I, I've been able to do some fun things over my career and, and in the world of pathogen hunting, as you put it, and looking at infectious disease, we have to go where those pathogens are. And, you know, in some cases that, you know, that's going literally out into the jungle or digging dirt, you know, digging holes in the dirt or whatnot, where these things naturally live in nature. And in one particular case, we were chasing down the source of an outbreak of something called tick-borne relapsing fever. It's caused by a spirochete. It's kind of like Lyme disease, a little bit different. And it's caused by ticks that typically live in caves or sometimes they'll live in old cabins. But in this particular case, it seemed to be tied to a group of hikers that, that spent the night in an old mining shaft. And then all of them, except for one, got this tick-borne relapsing fever. And the one who didn't was somebody who got kicked out of the mining shaft, I think for drinking too much or something. But then they went all, they all went home and all their kids got tick-borne relapsing fever as well. And it turns out that the kids were playing in the sleeping bags that these hikers had. And so they got bit by these ticks. The hikers got bit by these ticks. And so clearly something had happened in that mine. Uh, so the, this was actually in, in Southern Arizona, part of what's now called Saguaro National Monument. I went in with a, with a colleague of mine into the Na National Monument to see if we could find this mine shaft after about 20 years to see if these ticks are still there and are they still infected with the spirochete bacteria that causes relapsing fever. We had these old maps that was drawn up by the people that did the original investigation this is probably actually about 25 years previous. And it was great. It was like being on an adventure trip and we were actually able to find it. It was marked out, drawn maps up these gullies. And we find this, in fact, we found two mine shafts up in these hills. And, and I was a little nervous about maybe mountain lions in the region. Yeah, so especially in we, Arizona, we get up to it. We throw uh, rocks in the hole. We listen, is there anything moving around? Nothing. So then we crawl down in. It's not much bigger than the size of a body to get down into it. But once you did, you could kind of stoop and, and move around. We set up a tick trap, which is use carbon dioxide, right? Because that's what animals breathe out that attracts the ticks. Well, in this case, it was the, it had dry ice in it that gave off sublimated carbon dioxide that would bring in the in the ticks. So we set it up overnight, see if the ticks would come into this thing and then left the spot. We actually got down to our car and we were about to get written up by the park ranger for illegally being on National Park Service land and illegally trying to collect specimens. And so we said, sorry, thanks. Thanks for letting us go. We'll never do it again. And then of course we parked someplace else the next morning, hike back up, get up into the mine again, crawl down, did the same thing, throw in rocks, no, no noise get in there and we see that the tick trap had been knocked over. So we thought that was interesting. Maybe there were some animals, again, still worried about mountain lions, but we decided let's go explore the rest of this mine shaft to see, maybe find some bats or something cool. This is something geeky science people do. And we turn around and there's a javelina, not a yard, maybe a yard and a half away from us, just standing there staring at us. We've put the flashlight on it. And I just turned around and hightailed out and I, and I jump as I'm jumping through the hole to get out, I hear my colleague behind me yelling, let's get out of here. It's like, it took him a couple of minutes. He didn't know what was going on. I get up, I'm like, not breathing very hard. And, and he climbs out of the hole just as the javelina squeezes out right next, essentially runs up his back. They go out, the javelina goes squealing off to the side. I'm standing there laughing and crying. My, my colleague didn't know what was going on, but yeah, that's my javelina story. And for those listeners who aren't aware, javelina can be 
cranky and temperamental. And so it's not always the case that they'll just squeeze out, especially <laughs> if they feel threatened or they're protecting young ones. So they I got some massive that. canines. Yeah, they got some massive canines. They're not afraid to launch those into you either. But I think this one was as scared as we were, maybe not as much, but close. Yeah, it probably was on. Yeah, it's like, what are these dudes doing down here? I'm just <laughs> curious. I'm, I don't want to take us too far, here, but it's always. So if the ticks are in the mine, are they living like on javelinas and how do they survive down there? So these types of ticks are called soft body ticks and they don't live on the animals. They typically live in animal dens. They'll live in rodent burrows or where other animals will den down. They'll feed on the animal at night and then drop off and then go essentially live in the dirt, the, the soil until they need to feed again, which might not be for several weeks. They'll digest that blood meal. So they don't actually live on the animal. All right. So I have a feeling this podcast is going to make me think about things I probably don't want to think about. <laughs> so let's transform from ticks to variants of COVID. And so help us understand these mutations that are happening and maybe more importantly, what that means in relation to the vaccines that are being distributed. Are we going to be in a state where we're playing kind of an arms race where there's a mutation and we're trying to get a new vaccine, a new variant, there's another, and we're doing this domino effect, or am I thinking about it wrong? No, I think you're, you're probably pretty close to the money there. There's, what we're doing is watching the evolution of this virus in real time, and we're doing it in a way we've never been able to do before, right? We have everybody around the world sequencing this virus, and we're watching very closely for these variants. And so we get to actually see when these mutations first pop up and which ones are important and which ones don't mean anything. And so there's only been a few times where mutations have popped up that have really changed the, the nature of the virus in a way that is important. And so the ones that we're following now here in, in May of 2021 are the ones that have kind of been all over the news that first came out of the UK, first came out of South Africa or out of Brazil. And then California had a, a couple of variants too. Those are um, really pretty prevalent, but it turns out that, and they're pretty prevalent because they move so fast, right? They, they can spread so fast. Maybe they'll cause a, a, a higher viral load in somebody, meaning that it'll replicate more virus particles and it's easier to get out and spread to the next person. And this is essentially what we thought would happen is that this kind of survival of the fittest the most fit viral strains are what we're going to see at the end of this pandemic. And fitness is defined here as the one that is able to find the next susceptible person. So because it's propagation. Of it. Yeah. And so this is, we didn't know which variants they would be, but it turns out it's these that we're looking at now. The, that UK variant, also known as B117, I think that is the, that's going to be the winner in this. Every place it shows up, it really becomes the dominant strain. Here in Arizona, where I'm at, we had those California variants that that really started to take over in early part of 2021. And it's now been almost completely replaced by that, the UK variant. And that's happened around the world. So I think COVID-21 is essentially this UK variant, and, and there might be a couple of more. So that kind of gets to what, what we're doing with the variants and what we're seeing. The Thinking about the arms race between us and the virus is true to a point that we're building up a lot of great immunity. The vaccines we have now even work for these variants for the most part. And so they're going to be good. And then we'll likely have to get boosters because the virus is going to survive. It's just so efficient at, at being able to spread to the next person that we're going to have to get boosters, Not probably not as much because of more and more mutations, but because our immunity will start to drop off. And so maybe after about 18 months, 
we need a booster just to get our immunity back up and, and you know, to prevent a serious infection, just kind of like we do with some other viruses that we get booster shots for. You have to get a tetanus booster every every many years, typically about 10 years. With this, it might be every couple of years, like the influenza virus. You know, I was struck by a couple of things that you said, and it triggered for me some thoughts that are true in medicine, right? And you said the vaccine is effective for the most part with these variants. And then you said, you know, the fittest will survive, right? And so I think about antibiotic resistant infections, right? And there's always, you know, if you in medicine, if you quit taking your antibiotics, then by definition, maybe the ones that were most hardy to last the longest, now that is the strain that propagates right over time. So and then after a while, that new strain that's that's evolved out of being the most fittest, it survived the best and was able to propagate now is the new strain. And it's immune to some degree to some of our old techniques and tools. So why doesn't that apply to variants that will happen within this virus? What is the mechanism that you can say to me, well, no, that's a whole different mechanism because it sounds exactly the same to me. No, I think you're you're definitely right. And it's a concern. It's talked about more. It's given more attention than it probably needs right now. We definitely have seen some mutations that allow for evasion of some antibodies. So when you get an infection, First, you generate a cellular response, so your T cells and your B cells then generate antibodies. And those antibodies are pretty specific to different parts of the virus. It turns out that there's a mutation or two that are popping up in some of these variants that the antibodies that would normally touch that part of, say, the spike protein don't attach because you have a mutation in there. So there's a little bit of evasion, but we're seeing, you know, you get a lot of different antibodies generated. And so you're not evading all of those. The worst effect has been some of the monoclonal antibody therapies because that type of a therapy, you have one specific antibody. And if you have a variant that essentially allows you to evade that antibody, that therapy doesn't work anymore. So that happened down in in South Africa with one of the mutations that they've seen in in that strain. They couldn't use one of the the primary monoclonal antibody therapies. The same thing with the California variant. There's a therapy that can't be used in places like California, Arizona that had a lot of that variant around. And so we are seeing some of that evasion, but overall immune evasion, we're not even close yet where you get such a strong antibody response to the vaccine as well, or not antibody response, overall immune response to the vaccine, which includes your antibodies in your T cells, that the virus is not able to really evade it yet. What we have seen is that those mutations that have allowed some of the antibody resistance, if you will, don't really give the virus much more advantage. And so it doesn't really help perpetuate that virus. And so it's not being selected for like we see with antibiotic resistance. But it is it is quite possible that the surviving variants pick up a couple more that will be selected for a couple more mutations so that maybe in a, in a, a year or two, we do see evasion of the, the antibodies that you get from these vaccines. And therefore we need to change the, the, essentially the formula of the vaccine to meet up with the new variants. And that's going back to that arms race, right? Yeah. Um, and is my perception that the less that we get vaccinated, the better chance there is for that scenario to happen? Yes. So clearly we want to get as many people vaccinated as possible because that drives the overall virus down because what you're doing is you're taking away 
any you know susceptibles in in an environment where you have a case and so that virus can't find the next person right and and if we get enough of that that's what we call herd immunity but this virus is very efficient at transmission that i think we need to have very very high levels of immunization to be able to get to that herd immunity and i don't think we're going to get there at least anytime soon. And I'm thinking probably north of what had been being said before, maybe 85% or, or even 90%. We're not going to get that level overall in, in our different populations because there's vaccine hesitancy. Some people just refuse vaccines. And because of that, I think the virus is still going to survive in pockets and we'll still be able to continue to move around. And every time it does replicate, it can pick up another mutation. And yeah, you might get that get that golden ticket that allows it to really completely evade, you know, the different antibodies and immune responses. And then that, yeah, that'll be selected for because then you have essentially a whole brand new bunch of immune or susceptible people. Right. And so, and it's that, and you look and go, and the more times it's replicating in the more different people, the more likely it's going to hit that golden ticket. Yep. Yeah. But, and we know this is actually a fairly slow mutator compared to some some of the other viruses we watch. But what we can average is you can you have a chance of picking up one mutation per infection. So when we went through these big surges, especially our winter surge, you know, there that was so many opportunities around the around the country, certainly around the world, so many opportunities for, you know, devastating mutations to be picked up and selected for. And you know what? There was only a handful that really did seem to change it enough that allowed it to become, you know, more transmittable or, or you know, start evading some antibodies. So my fear of that is is not high, but the theoretical possibility is there, and it increases with the increased number of people that are are susceptible. So that's why vaccination is still really critical. Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions provides full suite IT managed services and security solutions in order for companies to operate successfully in the current highly connected environment. Has your company chosen to increase remote working capacity? Has your company been looking to transition more of its IT infrastructure to the cloud? The Encompass team has helped numerous client partners adapt their business infrastructure to be more remote friendly while improving their security posture. Our team of information technology professionals will test your team with friendly phishing attempts and help you train your team to follow more secure behaviors to protect your business and reputation. With industry-leading service level response times, Encompass's IT team will help keep your enterprise operating smoothly and in a position to minimize the inevitable attack. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Information Technology, and click the Learn More button to schedule the discovery call. So you mentioned something that I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to jump on it. You used the term I had actually written down, which was vaccine hesitancy. And it got me to thinking about whether or not that's kind of normal with new vaccines. And in every population with a new vaccine, there's a hesitancy. And, and I mean, if that's the case from your perspective, then it maybe it helps to depoliticize to some degree some of the people who don't want to get or are waiting and and kind of trying to you know be a slow adopter instead of an early adopter because i think about it and everybody's vaccinated against polio right and there's zero has i mean for the most part right but maybe when it right. first came out there was a ton of hesitancy yep 
Yeah. And, and in fact, that's part of the problem. That's part of the reason why we have hesitancy. The, the polio vaccine wasn't perfect. There was a lot of side effects. And in fact, we would have, you know, because we use live polio virus, we yeah. would actually have actual polio cases coming from the vaccine. And we actually had some contamination of vaccine development that allowed for people to get killed by getting vaccines. And this is now thinking back 50 years ago. Right. And a lot of that the stories get told, it gets carried forward, and people still think that there is that kind of a risk from vaccines. And so, yeah, there is a natural hesitancy because of that. Now, think of it. Vaccines have increased at, at least as much in technology as computers have over the last 50 years. So they're not even comparable. The vaccines that we get today are nothing like what we, even you and I used to get as kids. These are um, really advanced technologies, especially now these new mRNA vaccines, but they are new and they came out so fast, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, like way too fast for people's comfort level. And, and, and I gotta say, thank God for that because we had to get a vaccine out. And thankfully it's these incredibly effective and incredibly safe vaccines. So it's, it's made such a difference, right? We see it in the US. You look at countries like the UK and Israel where they just went full force with vaccine. Numbers have just dropped down to almost nothing and it's totally manageable and that's, that's fantastic. But what you said is also really important and, and I'm a huge proponent of this is depoliticizing this. Like you said, I like that we're using this phrase vaccine hesitancy because I, I can understand that hesitancy and we're not using more political terms like anti-vaxxers or vaccine deniers. And this is really important because we all have to kind of come through this together. You know, I know that there's a hesitancy from the, the point of view of these vaccines coming out so fast, but now we are generating more data on this one vaccine than we've ever generated before. And the data is even better than the great data that came out of those initial trials. The vaccines are more effective than almost any vaccine we've ever developed, and they're safer than almost any vaccine we've ever developed, given the advanced state of this technology. So uh, there, there really is no medical reason not to get vaccinated. And once you do, you really can return to this sense of normalcy, you know, without fear of potentially getting it. And, and maybe you're not worried about yourself, but transmitting to somebody who's at high risk, you can just take that load off by getting vaccinated. So I, I'm a huge proponent of it, but I'm not a proponent of, you know, making mandatory vaccines or doing any of that vax shaming. That's not helpful. We, we all have to live together. We all want to be able to support each other. And if you're not going to get vaccinated, I still want to make sure that you can enjoy the rest of your life with the rest of us. You know, it's interesting because as soon as we start to put labels on people, the only thing that I've ever seen happen is that we create space between us and them, right? There is going to be a subset that are never going to get vaccinated. And quite frankly, I'm not worried about them. What I want to do is figure out ways to bring along the hesitant, the people who are unsure, the people who are trying to time it, thinking that more data is better. They're kind of waiting. And I don't have a problem with that. But I think the verbiage, I agree with you, that goes out there only further makes people become intractable. More yeah. Right. Yep. And they become dug in in their position. And you're actually creating the exact thing that you're trying to avoid. And you know, it's interesting to me because I didn't have any fear around getting the vaccine. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I put all sorts of stuff in my body and survived it all. So I had no fear about getting the vaccine. And it was interesting because I didn't understand it. But when I got the vaccine, I felt a sense of liberation. And I didn't realize how much 
background anxiety or fear that I was carrying about the, I didn't think I was even worried about the virus itself. I was like, ah, I'll be fine. I'll catch it. And it won't be anything. But when I, it was actually liberating. And that's an interesting point that I don't think is talked about a lot. There's a psychological freeing when you get the vaccine. Definitely. I, I felt the same way. And even though, you know, and I kind of know the virus inside and out and, and un- understanding my risks too, in, in, in my current health state, I was not fearful of, of disease, but the, the vaccine actually was freeing because you know what? I, I still have parents they're you know in their 80s and even though they've been vaccinated i can do a lot to protect them and that's the single biggest thing i could do was get vaccinated but you know you bring up about some of these things that for me is really an important part of public health policy it's how we communicate with people you know and having spent a good part of my career in, in public health i think we've unfortunately failed a lot of places during this pandemic because we think that we identify the right answer. And then if you don't follow this, then you're wrong, right? Yes. And so we kind of we kind of split apart the population and you're either on this side or that side. And, and in reality, you know, there was a whole lot about this pandemic that we didn't know. In fact, there's a whole lot about, we didn't know, we didn't know. But right. what was almost worse was, as Mark Twain would say, it's not that, it's it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. And, and people, really get dug in and, and on, on one side or the other. So now that we're moving into this this final phase and, you know, the CDC's recently come out and said, you know, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask, whether you're indoors or outdoors. That is like so foreign to a, what a lot of people have really kind of turned into their belief system. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, okay, this is what we're learning from the data, right? The data changes. We got to continue to understand what science is telling us and shift with that. And the science is absolutely clear. These vaccines absolutely allow you to interact with other people who are vaccinated without fear of transmission one way or the other. You know, what's interesting though, Dave, is that I think that we, one of the areas that we missed was the comment you just made, which is we come out and say, you can't do this or you can't do that. And if you do X, Y, or Z is going to happen. And then three weeks later, we'll come out and say something different. And for those of us in, a, in particular fields, understand that that's the process of evolving an idea and you start and you're giving the best data. But the problem is for people who aren't necessarily in a STEM related business industry or vocation, to them, it sounds like nobody knows what they're talking about. And I think we did a disservice of not explaining along the way and saying, look, this is our best information today. But let me tell you, in three weeks, I'm going to come out with different information as we gather more data and we're going to keep driving against giving you the best information we have at the time. And I think that led to distrust, hesitancy, fear. We didn't explain how science works while we were telling them about the science. You are so right. I mean, it's wait, say people that think- again. Say yeah, that you are you are so right, Michael Servos. <laughs> there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, this is exactly what science is. Is it's this continuum of knowledge. Right. It's not this set of immutable facts, right? It is we continue to learn, and sometimes what we thought was true isn't true in every setting, right? And you know, so there's been a lot of that shifting early on. You know, people were and and shifting policy that really confused people. People were told don't wear masks. But they were never told why. The reason why was that we really needed those N95 masks for the healthcare workers. We didn't want the general population sucking those up, right? But that message totally got mixed up. And then once people started saying, you got to wear masks, you know, you get that a little confusion. 
But then it became actually you absolutely have to wear masks. And, and again, what we were learning in science never got out to the public was that, you know what, masks provide a certain level of protection, but they're not a force field. And in fact, what we've learned is that the vast majority of COVID cases actually were following the mask recommendations. On average, when you look across multiple studies, it's about 70% of cases actually were following, but they still got infected. But it still was, if you're not following the, the recommendations, you're going to get COVID. Well, it was really, it's more complex than that. And yeah. it becomes very hard, I think, to have these, what I, I like to call adult conversations and, and let people know that, look, we don't know everything. This is what we know. And this is the best that information we know. And we're going to keep letting you know. I'm not sure why that didn't come across in the messaging. It's very disappointing because it's come out with the vaccines too. You know, when I hate to say it, but the politics has just been, has such detrimental effects. The, these vaccines, these vaccines, you know, to in, when you have a pandemic start and then you are able to design a vaccine, develop a vaccine, trial a vaccine, produce a vaccine and get a vaccine out into the arms of people all within the same year, completely unheard of. I mean, that's this ridiculous. We laughed at Hollywood when they would put that into right. movies because you, you could never move that fast. But we moved that fast. But interestingly enough, we did that under an administration that was not in favorable in some light. And so a lot of that was poo-pooed. We can't trust that. How could we trust it? You know. But as soon as then the politics swings, it was like everybody has to get it. And, and I thought, wait, we're not supposed to trust it. And then the other side was saying, trusting it is now not trusting. So I'm not getting it. So it's like we shift back and forth with ideology rather than both sides saying, hey, look, there's some really great science behind this. Let us at least set aside the politics and make sure that the vaccine gets out into as many people as possible. And let's just drive this pandemic away and save as many lives as possible. Yeah, the problem is, is though that the main factor that drives politics is a political party's ability to trigger emotional response. And yeah. as soon as we're triggering emotional response, it means we're not dispassionate and rational. By definition, the terms that are used in conjunction with science <laughs> pretty frequently. And so, yeah, it became easy to become emotionally attached one way or the other and to lose sight of the miracle, really, of what was achieved. Because, I mean, it's hundreds of millions of people have received the vaccine at this point, right? Am I it, hundreds of millions of people? A billion and a half, actually. A billion and a half. So that's what, 15% of our of a total population on, on the planet have received the vaccine. Think about that. That's incredible. It, and it's, it's been a, the, a year. The greatest feats of human engineering using science and, you know, done at a time where we actually are incredibly divided. It is a miracle, like what you say. I, I, it, where we're at right now, we had everything going against us and we still have accomplished this and, and we should enjoy that. We should celebrate that. That's we've heck we paid for it yeah, uh, for I sure. Think, I think it'll, it'll, I think it'll take some time to gain the perspective and then that'll lead to the appreciation and, and understanding of what exactly happened. You I know, you're right. you talk about this fast track development of the vaccine and this new technology that was a prime driver in that. And it got me to thinking about, how that technology and what we achieved portends for different things in the future. And let me give you a couple examples. So I look at these COVID long haulers and when I read about it and look at it, it seems that many of their symptoms 
are strikingly similar to chronic fatigue, people that never recover from Epstein-Barr, some people with autoimmune disease. And I think to myself and go, am I making associations where they don't belong? Or is there something about being punished with a viral load? And does the technology allow us to find new ways to maybe address lingering infections? Or is that more a result of pathway and systemic changes that happen that have nothing to do with once the pathogen is gone from the body. You never cease to amaze me, Mike. That's a brilliant point. And, and really? uh, huh. yeah, no, it is. Uh, what you're, so what you're pointing out is something that is, I think is absolutely true. Well, this long hauler thing is an effect of a viral insult on the body to a degree that we don't typically see. And there's a big reason for that is that this was a brand new virus that we weren't adapted to. We didn't know how to respond to, and it wasn't adapted to us. So it started invading different cell types as, you know, so it wasn't like an efficient infector. Ah, and, ah. and so we had these, we had these kind of one-offs, these outliers, these very strange syndromes, along with the very standard COVID infection. And the other thing is that we're seeing the body's response to that in some people, in fact, it might be as many of a third of people who had really serious infections is this long-term lasting effect, whether it's COVID brain or uh, it's some other neurologic muscular yeah. syndrome. And like you said, it, it has a lot of striking similarities to these other syndromes and, and issues that we have that we really can't get our arms around. We don't know what's causing them. And it could be, those could be very related. So the good news is, is that there's a ton of attention on this when, yeah, you couldn't get Congress to pass a dime to, to spend on something like chronic fatigue right. uh, or, or Epstein-Barr. But on this, we can. And there is billions of dollars being poured into doing the long hauler studies. And we're going to learn a ton from that, that hopefully we can parlay into some of these other issues. So that's interesting to me. So you think that the studies themselves will begin to reveal something that's happening in the body, which then gives us a place to start looking at remediation of that impact. Is that what you're saying to me? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, we've already put a ton of money and resources into COVID, but now, you know, as we move into this post pandemic, there might lose some sexiness and attention in the media, but the money and the, the medical attention is being put into understanding these processes that have these long lasting sequelae and, and what's driving that. Uh, and there's going to be whole careers built on this and, you know, medical departments and, and, and whatnot, because of all this money, the, I can only see that the outcome of that is going to be a real advance in knowledge in what is the long-term effect of very serious viral infections on non-target cells, non-target organs uh, that we would normally look at. So yeah, that, that's exactly I think we're going to get some benefits that we can't even really even think about right now. That's really should be encouraging to those people who fall into that subset, regardless of what triggered the event. Right. And it's hopeful and it's uh, trite what I'm about to say, but it feels very true is that like even through these horrific times, we're going to find ways to leverage and come out better in a way if we stay the focus. And I like that. I like thinking about that and about how these people who suffer sometimes their whole lives with these debilitating symptoms with no answer. And, and for many years, it was told it was in your head, right? It was dismissed as psychological or a psychiatric problem. And now they're starting to 
just the fact that it's being acknowledged gives people hope, right? Yeah, they don't no. feel isolated. That's awesome. That's Encompass aims to put the provider back in control of the healthcare equation. The payer enrollment and provider privileging service takes advantage of long relationships with both private and government payers to help reduce the cost of avoidable denials. The largest denial class is a payer-identified credentialing error. Encompass's team focuses exclusively on satisfying the reattestation needs, maintenance of expirables, and complete taxonomy accuracy from your providers to help capture all that is due to you from each payer. Some of our current clients have seen their provider revenues increase by up to $50,000 a year by having the Encompass payer enrollment and privileging team focus on management of the intentionally complex and cumbersome payer enrollment process. Contact us today to learn more about Encompass's payer enrollment and privileging process and how we can help improve your revenue capture through strategic and focused payer enrollment management. For more information, go to encompasshds.com, select credentialing and payer enrollment, and click the learn more button to schedule a discovery call. So tell me this, what keeps you up at night? COVID's not keeping you up. You're 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 awed by what we've done. Pull the camera back. Forget COVID for a second. What are the things that you're looking? I'll give you an example. I was reading the other day and came across this stat that kind of stunned me that there's well over a million people a year that die from malaria. And most of those people that die from malaria are under the age of five years old. And and I was just like, what? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going, why can't we, why can't we solve malaria? Why can't we, right? And, and so I'm speaking very ignorantly here, but help me understand that, help me navigate it. Maybe that's a bad example, but the things that are out there that you're afraid of, what is our chances of solving other things? Because I've seen the power and might when we focus, right? When we say we got to do it, great things happen. So are there other things we should be shining that spotlight on? Or am I mixing apples and no. oranges? No, I, I think you're right. And it's not opportunistic, even from someone from my perspective to say, let us learn from this. Let us learn that just what you said, that when we put force and might that we have into solving some major world problems, we can really do that. You know, we, we solved a major world problem with World War II because of force and might. And, and a complete focus on on essentially ridding the world of, of you know the Nazis and, and the other fascist regimes. You know we we had in the U.S. we put a ton of resources to get us on the moon, right? You know with Kennedy's moonshot. Yep. There are these moonshot things that we show we can we can absolutely move mountains. And what we did back then in the '60s, getting to the moon, that was crazy. No one would have. <laughs> it, it was ridiculous. Insane. But we did it. What we did with the COVID vaccine is also completely insane. And I really do think that we can actually start to consider we could solve problems that were completely unsolvable before. Malaria is one of them. And the, and the reason why we don't have a good malaria vaccine is that it has this very complex life cycle. You know, it's multiple stages of which vaccines typically only target one and not efficient enough that that we actually seem to miss the boat because you can't get all the life stages all at once to to really prevent infection or, or prevent transmission. And so it's a complex thing that we using old technology, we couldn't solve. 
But now we know we can put a lot of resources into new science and new technology and, and hopefully solve these things. The biggest thing I was working on before COVID, I, and I, I, I'm kind of a generalist. I, I do look at a, a large number of pathogens and, and really interested on where pathogens come from and how they evolve and, and how they actually get into humans. That's an interest of mine. But the focus of my, my work has been highly on dealing with the pathogen once it's in us. And the biggest problem in the world was tuberculosis before COVID. It was mm. killing between one and one and a half million people every year. The most important infectious disease by far. COVID comes in this past year in 2020, blows that out of the water. But in 2021, tuberculosis is going to be the number one disease again, mm. killing that many people. And it's because it's we haven't decided that it's important enough for to put a ton of eggs in that basket and try to solve that problem. And, and I really do think we can. I think there's some there's some promising new things out there on vaccines that we've not been able to figure that out. There's some promising new therapies and better ways to figure out precision medicine. How do we change people's therapies and get rid of their tuberculosis infection as fast as possible before they spread to somebody else? So hopefully we feel that infectious diseases are important enough to put resources in and we could save lives. And what happens when we save lives especially in these developing countries, they become wealthier, they become more successful, population rates go down, poverty goes away, as well as famine and starvation, those types of things. We solve the world's problems when we make the, the least among us more healthy. And I think that in that world, infectious diseases are such a huge problem that we've shown we could do something about. So are, is the new science, the new technologies, is that, what is that? Is that the, the same technology that we use to develop the COVID? Is it AI being applied to tracking and, and sequencing and probing for it? What, give, take us into that without blowing my head up. Just take it easy on the science, dude. <laughs> well, you know, as you mentioned, the, these new vaccines, these mRNA vaccines is essentially we're now, instead of having this very crude kind of a vaccine where we essentially take the organism itself, the pathogen itself and kill it and, and then inject all those proteins into somebody to get their immune system going. You get these weird effects from that. We've moved now to inserting pieces of that genomic material into, say, a viral vector, something that we know doesn't hurt you, but can help deliver okay. yep. that, that material into your cells. And that was kind of the, the state of the art about five years ago. And now these mRNA vaccines, where we're actually just taking that little piece of mRNA, that little piece of genetic material that's important enough for your cell to replicate and make just a small chunk of the spike protein, and then your antibodies and your cellular response goes off just unbelievably, but it's so targeted, you don't get any of these off effects. That we can now it, you know, use more and more of this genetic information to develop these vaccines and I think develop therapies as well for people who are already infected, being able to go in and almost instantly reprogram your own uh, immune response to go in and wipe it out. Instead of giving you drugs that that you know might be toxic or, or have other effects, we'll actually just reprogram your own immune system to go ahead and clear out an infection. We're doing that now with cancer, with things like CAR T therapy, where we're just reprogramming your T cells to now respond to just the cancer cells. And then you inject them back in and they take care of it. We're already starting to think about that. How can we do that quickly for infectious diseases and do it fast enough to be able to wipe out an infection using your own body's immune capabilities? So that's one area that that's advancing. I'm pretty excited about other areas. You mentioned AI. So, you know, 
computational biology has just exploded over the past 10 years. Part of that is because of our advances in genomics. We're just generating so much data. I mean, where we would, you know, you'd, you'd work all day and, and you'd have an experiment that, you know, you'd be excited that you get a gigabyte worth of data out of this and then you can go back and work on that. Now we, we spend, we do experiments that within an hour, now we're developing terabytes worth of data or petabytes worth of data hmm. that could take, you know, armies and armies of supercomputers of 10 years ago to work on. It's now coming, you know, with computation um, capabilities, we're actually able to, to handle these enormous data loads and sift through it and find answers much more quickly than we were able to ever do before. What would take months before now takes minutes or sometimes seconds. So that is totally advancing the state of medicine in, in understanding what's going on within a patient. And, and it's going to get even crazier with, you know, quantum computing is allowing us to essentially completely free ourselves of any of those constraints that, that computers had before and, and just have instantaneous results right there at the patient bedside. So, yeah, I, mean, I think we're in a, wow. the new frontier is going to be amazing. And, and it's been amazing this last 10 years. It's been a wild ride. I'll tell you, uh, the next 10 years, is I, it's even hard to predict. It's almost science fiction. Yeah, it's it's really it's exciting to think about what's going to bubble up in the next 10 years, right? The, the applications, the ways that you can think about it. And the it, what I'm struck by is this increase in computational capacity so quickly allows people to find the signal and the noise, right? That's the goal is to see the pattern, to see the signal and to fail quickly, which is what we always say in startups, right? Is mm -hmm. that didn't work, that didn't work mm -hmm. because you wanna get the bad stuff out and, and get to that piece of gold. And so it's really interesting and it's exciting to hear that there's gonna be this, we're in some ways gonna be on the precipice of, of maybe some really remarkable changes, both from a public health standpoint, but also from an individualized medicine standpoint, right? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't even get into things like CRISPR technology and, and a number of other tools. That. Yeah, that we get to use just now in our regular everyday things that we're like so excited to hear about just a few years ago, we actually get to bring in and use even within our, our little lab here, you know, within within a couple of years. So just the 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 enormity of the new inventions and discoveries is great, but how fastly that can get put into place into like translational research to then develop new drugs, diagnostics, therapies. Yeah, I think that we're we're really going to see some cool things over these next 10 years. I think there's a, a little bit of a, a dark side to think about this, too. And I don't know that we got time to go into it now, Mike, but one of the you know, one of the things is is that, you know, some of these things have dual use. Right. And, and we got to think about that negative side of things. There's a lot of discussion right now about, say, even the source of, of this pandemic, this virus. We know that these viruses were being studied in a couple of different labs around the world, certainly right there in Wuhan, China. And we know that we can do things like what we call gain of function studies, where we're actually trying to change the function of, of a certain protein in a, in a virus to make it replicate faster, or infect a, a cell faster. We're doing that on a number of other things. So let's just set aside the, the origins of SARS-CoV-2 for a minute. But that scenario where maybe it was in a laboratory and it possibly escaped has actually happened in multiple other labs before. It, it's likely what started what was called the Russian flu yeah. uh, because that was just that was clearly an old version of the flu going back even to the original 1918 strain that had disappeared forever. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere shows up 
Well, because labs were working with it. Anthrax has been used in labs and and actually purposely delivered and accidentally sent to other places where it could have infected people. And, And so we have to also, with this great, I guess maybe this just gets to the point that with this this great technology, we have this responsibility to understand that it could actually be something that could be used either on purpose or accidentally for our detriment. And and I think that's going to be really important because it's going to be so powerful what we can do. You know, and it's interesting because it's analogous in some ways to, you know, splitting the atom, right? And there's this, it's like the genie's out of the bottle Yeah. and there's great things that can come from it. But now we're faced with this idea that it also can be used for malintent. And, you know, the pro- <laughs> the real problem is human nature. You know, it's not the technology. People want to demonize the technology. It's the humans that get a hold of the technology and think maybe aberrantly uh, about something. And, and so it's the problem that I see with this and what I asked you what keeps you up at night. What keeps me up at night is this point, which is that I don't feel like there's enough cohesion and political mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. and that the power, the, the tool is too powerful that we're going to get to a point quickly that we all agree on how to safeguard it, how to limit it, how to manage it. And everybody's got their little own agenda and their own ideas and fears of loss of power or they want to gain power. And so what I worry about is that we're never going to, we're going to talk about it, but we're never going to get to that point where we go, no, this is how it's got to be. And so it's like the genie is going to come out of the bottle. It's just a matter of when. Am I I too negative? You said it. it. We're in the end, we're we're humans and there there is no end to our ability to accidentally do something bad as well as to purposely do something bad right. but on the flip side it's definitely true we are you know we are advancing as a species where you know things are by and large so much better than they were 100 years ago and that was so much better than it was 1000 years ago and and 10 years from now things are going to be so remarkable i mean we may have other problems but we're at the same time as we might be creating problems, we're solving major, major issues as well. And I think it's it, the more we could realize that, yeah, we're we're still all brothers and sisters circling around on this planet. That we we could work together to solve these real problems. And I think there was a lot of that in COVID too. I mean, we had a lot of this fighting against each other. But you know what? A lot of that was definitely within this country, right? And the, the local politics. But when we look on the grand scheme of things, we had a an, a the entirety of humanity focused on one problem. And I think that in the end, we're even though we had a lot of loss, I mean, it was a lot and it was and it hurt and a lot of disease. It, it would have been so much worse if it was 25 years ago, if it was 50 years ago. So thank goodness it happened in this day and age. On the other hand, hopefully we've proven to ourselves that we actually can accomplish some amazing things together as a species not just across party lines, but across geographic lines and political lines, political boundaries. Uh, so I, I actually have a lot of optimism in in looking at what's happened during this past year. Yeah, I do too. And I think that, you know, maybe Americans, but I think maybe Americans in particular, but maybe humans in general, it seems to me that we're at our best when it's hardest, when the chips are down, when it's dire, there's this tremendous resilient capacity to rise up and to overcome. My hope is that we just 
we remember that ability and it we ride this wave of cooperation and collaboration and creation and don't need every time a major pandemic to find that our better angel right yeah because yeah. um, yeah. you're right we, we we solved we solved something when something really bad happened but let's if you go back maybe a year and a half before it seems like we were looking for bad things right yeah that maybe weren't even there because i think as by our nature we want to solve problems and so maybe if we can harness that part of our nature without trying to make problems to solve but actually solve the real ones that are out there i think we really could make a difference i agree listen i'm looking at the time and i've kept you here almost an hour and normally i try to get people out of here between 30 and 45 minutes. So <laughs> Wait, I thought this was just the warm up, Mike. <laughs> I'm highly appreciative and I've learned a lot as I always do when I talk with you, Dave, and I really appreciate your perspective. I wish that quite frankly you had a louder megaphone because your ability to explain the science of it and acknowledge the shortcomings and paint the picture of where we need to go is from my perspective it's unique. And so I hope you do consider continuing your public facing educational role because I think you're particularly well suited for it and you're very good at it. And I think it's much needed today. So thank you for taking this little megaphone and doing your part here. This has actually been really cool. I appreciate it. And I, and I love speaking in, in your megaphone and, and actually just chatting with you because I think this was a good conversation. So I appreciate you having me on. All right, Dave, thanks for your time. Yeah, you bet. In listening to Dr. Engelthaler, I was struck by several things. One, I was really invigorated by his optimistic take and wonder at what the vaccine effort accomplished in such a short time. And two, I was admiring of his excitement about our, what our scientific future portends. At the same time, I was struck by how I was clinging to my beliefs that this recent pandemic was only the tip of the iceberg and that the future looked kind of bleak. And that got me to thinking about coachability in athletes. In sports and in business, leaders are often looking for coachable team members. In my experience, coachability encompasses a few key elements. Can one accept new information from subject matter experts that is different than their closely held beliefs? Are they defensive or open to that iterative critical feedback loop? Do they seek out feedback or are they avoiding it? Can they use the feedback to change behaviors and thoughts in pursuit of the goal of getting better? And can the ego be sublimated for the greater good of the team? And to me, the reason these are such sought after traits in business and in athletics is that many times less talented team members will outperform their more talented teammates simply because they're coachable and thus willing to put in the time to listen, learn, adapt, and evolve. And we all have had the experience with or heard about that teammate who wrecks chemistry, is a cancer, or just can't get out of their own way. So what does coachability have to do with pandemics? Maybe a little bit. I'm wondering if my clinging to beliefs, despite an expert telling me my beliefs are not quite on target, is indicative of a larger problem in our society. As a country, have we become uncoachable? 
Are we so entrenched in our separate belief systems that we no longer can accept feedback from subject matter experts? Are we individually and collectively defensive about criticism of our closely held beliefs? Are we so satisfied with where we are that we have given up on the idea that we can get better? I've often been struck by how in this country, when it's hit by a force greater than itself, it rallies and our best selves are revealed. I was hopeful that the shared burden of this pandemic would be such a catalyst. And through that baptism of fire, we would revert to a nation of learners, strivers, and dreamers always trying to get better. And despite our current deep polarization, that still may be the case. At the very least, my part must be leaving myself open to that possibility and releasing some of my own closely held beliefs when confronted with contrary evidence. You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit EncompassMedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.